week's podcast features a very special guest, our local gynecologic pathologist, Dr. Ian Hageman. Um, he happens to be my husband, and he has been a huge support um, in my life as an OBGYN all along the way. Um, and I think his career path in academic medicine is one that we've been able to thankfully navigate together, but also um, is just a little different side of things, as he says, the other side of the microscope. Um, a couple things happened to bring him as the guest today. Um, this is the first time we're going a little bit outside our department, but um, the department of OBGYN is very busy right now. It's very hard to nail down people and times for podcasts. We've got a great lineup coming up, but people are just very busy, <laughs> and that's a great thing for our department. However, um, well, the pathologists are also busy because of us being busy. Um, I happen to live with this guy, and so I, he was kind enough to um, have a cup of coffee with me this morning and have a bit of a talk. The other thing is, Michelle Obama has a podcast now, which everyone should listen to. Um, her first guest was Barack Obama, and it just gave me an idea um, as they I listened to them talk about how they used their elite education and access to help empower their communities. Um, I was really thinking about how lucky Ian and I have been to have wonderful education. We met um, in college at Princeton University and were able to train here at WashU together as medical students. And we've been able to stay together along our training paths. So I hope you enjoy a little window into Ian's career path. And again, the other side of the microscope, hearing a little more about what life is like as a pathologist who works with a lot of OBGYNs. Have a great week. this podcast and I just couldn't keep away which seems to be a theme <laughs> so also today happens to be the day that Michelle Obama is debuting her podcast which um, her first guest was going to be Barack and it, it kind of gave me an idea that hey I know someone in a similar situation but maybe <laughs> slightly different <laughs> well maybe we can swap and your second guest can be Barack and my second Appearance can be on Michelle Obama's podcast. And we'll <laughs> we'll see if that up. works out. <laughs> um, well, what I would love to do, though, is talk a little bit about your career in medicine and also talk a little bit about wellness and balance. Um, so Ian and I have been married for, gosh, almost 19 years. Is that right? 2001 it was. And... Um, Probably for the first time as a family, we just watched The Karate Kid, which was all about balance and um, you know navigating that situation and finding balance and finish my sentence. Well, uh, yeah, because uh, yeah, that, <laughs> I don't that's, know what <laughs> uh, it's very important to be able to finish each other's sentences. You know, watching The Karate Kid uh, for the first time in probably 30 years, whenever it came out, it reminded me more of living in the 80s and watching The Karate Kid <laughs> the first time than connections to family, but it definitely uh, underlines a lot of important lessons for life, and you can see why it became such a cult classic, but I would have a hard time connecting it to present moment, I think. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> well, all right. Well, Martial arts have definitely changed since then. I think people true. have expanded their horizons a little bit. Uh, what was ahead of its time was the idea that karate is not just to show that you're strong, but that you're smart. And I think we've learned a little bit about sort of fighting smart, being smart, knowing your goals more than just dominating the battlefield. Right. And what's really important to you? How do you live your values in what you're doing every day? Yeah. I did see that coming. There were a lot of times that Mr. Miyagi could have used his karate skills to to show his dominance, to get his way, to make things right. But Daniel-san asked him, can you break a tree like this? And he said, I've never been attacked by a tree. Of course, breaking a big log is one of the stereotypes of what you do in 
karate. But I don't think either of us, no one from our family really ever studied martial arts. <laughs> That's so true. I was thinking about our young Oliver, who's nine, who attended about three sessions of martial arts and then dropped out because he didn't want it enough. Well, I think we had to chase him there and also then chase him home as he was crying, <laughs> leaving the... Yeah, drag him home. Out, That's right. Yeah, drag like, him there and drag him home. Well, tell, tell us your story in terms of how you got to where you are today, I guess, in terms of medicine, how you've made those choices. Like when someone asks you for the short story, because I know the very long story, but what do you say? How do you tell your story? Yeah, you know, as a pathologist, people don't ask me as often uh, <laughs> because I don't have as many opportunities to uh, encounter, whether it's students or, you know, we, we have a little bit more of a close-knit community. Uh, we'll get to talk about that, I'm sure. Um, but I was always kind of in tension between two things and interested in sort of applied science, and I really loved things like building model rockets or things that fly, uh, and I had the idea of maybe choosing some sort of engineering-related field, but I had this medicine thing going on uh, and was attracted to the service mission, too. I thought that it was important to do something that serves or helps others and uh, while designing circuit boards might have a social mission it's pretty indirect uh, and I also had the sense of wanting to sort of expand my ability to work with people just in terms of my own kind of technical skills I wasn't sure that it would be good for me to have a job where you were shut up in your own kind of uh, you know at your desk or workbench tinkering with something I wanted to have a little bit broader portfolio, I guess I'd say, rather than just a technical skill that I contributed. Yeah. Um, you were contributing technical skills. Can we talk a little bit about your, um, like, the transition from high school to college? You were... Oh, yeah, yeah, famous. yeah. Like, my dad had heard you on NPR, for example, and um, I hadn't. I was not listening to NPR at that time, but tell us about that. Yeah, so what had happened there, uh, I was... Uh, we lived in Fairfax County, Virginia by this point. There was a magnet program, Thomas Jefferson High School, that was a science and tech magnet. So we had uh, actually research labs for the your senior year. You had a basically senior thesis that you would complete. I did mine in a microelectronics lab that we had, and uh, there was a contest going on at the time sponsored by the Duracell batteries. Design anything that runs on Duracell batteries was kind of the idea. It was a college scholarship, so uh, I I had, uh, for various reasons, learned about this eye testing machine, a so-called perimeter that measures visual fields, and was interested in building kind of a more portable version. Uh, and I so I did that prototype, like a student project, uh, but I entered it in the contest, and it was you know this just if you've been to any kind of uh, science fair or or that you know invention convention you know that there's a wide range of levels of sophistication of the inventions but I thought this one was okay for a project that had been done like by the student themselves not in a university research lab uh, anyway that project because of uh, coming out ahead in the Duracell battery competition ended up getting some publicity and uh, I had a couple of appearances in uh, I don't know Dateline NBC uh, I did get uh, a couple of media interviews on various radio stations and uh, Parade Magazine was a sort of non-glossy insert in the Sunday paper. So my parents have a lot of that kind of stuff framed. But anyway, yeah, so it was, that's a good way to come to the attention of your future father-in-law. Uh, and uh, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of graduates at Thomas Jefferson High School were going on to fancy colleges. So I think there were 14 of us who went on to Princeton in the same year. That was, you know, it was just normal wouldn't say a feeder, but, you know, we all kind of applied. So out of 400, several were going to be accepted. So for me, going to Princeton was kind of a comfort zone, not necessarily specifically there, but just the idea of like a Ivy League type of college. It was just what you were going to do. And none of us had any apprehensions about like the level of academic rigor or anything. It was just kind of what the next step was going to be, because why not? Right. Was it refreshing to meet someone from a small town in Wisconsin who actually was having a lot of fear about that? Well, I didn't really understand or know that that was a thing. So uh, it was interesting right. to, you know, what I was aware that the social piece was going to be a bigger mm -hmm. aspect of mm -hmm. going to college. Uh, 
part of attending a magnet high school is that your classmates don't live very close to you. I never had a car, and uh, there's a lot of traffic in the D.C. area. I, I would say that I didn't really socialize with that many people. There's a, you know, a small group of people who might have lived kind of in our area, but for the most part, you know, by the way, we were pretty busy with schoolwork and uh, had a longer school day and then a pretty long commute. It took me more than an hour to get to school each way. And uh, I, I didn't necessarily have any real like group activities or sports or anything that I was doing. Sports was not a huge thing, I have to say. Science and Tech Magnet High School program, <laughs> at least for me. I mean, what I realized later was that there were a lot of kids who were really eking out this more traditional uh, high school experience. I think I'd been a little bit probably uh, hindered by spending so many years in a foreign country, which was great. I mean, that was a highlight of, of my life, but it didn't give me a very good understanding of like what American kids were supposed to do when they were in school. School-sponsored right. sports just didn't exist in France. It just wasn't a thing. Like, there wasn't a school team. Right. You didn't, like, join the band. I mean, there was no band. Like, you want to take music lessons? Whatever you want. <laughs> but there's no band. Uh, so, it's a school. And then was it pretty clear to you that you were going to enter? So you entered Princeton, and you are pretty clear that you are going to be pre-med and go to medical school? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you know, I flirted a little bit with doing like a more of an engineering major because those classes appealed to me. I saw some of our friends who were taking them. I thought, gee, I'd really like to be able to do that and use, uh, you know, use some of these skills or build some of these skills. And it's very practical. I think I'm pretty practical, actually. And so I get yes. frustrated by things that don't have a real purpose. And so kind of the more deep thought disciplines that sometimes been frustrating to me but I, I did end up majoring in chemistry I think it probably doesn't really matter that much what your college major is sometimes people make that into a big part of their identity but I guess that's a liberal arts idea that that it's really like how you study it instead of but I, I really enjoyed college I did take a lot of kind of language class you know I took some French classes and Russian language and but I do think the social piece was important for us and so I you know I just wonder about what's happening with the coronavirus now that that aspect of college is really being disrupted mm -hmm. or every level mm -hmm. of schooling. Absolutely, and, yeah. You know, that's, that's an important function of it, the way we've set it up in America, is that colleges are mostly residential. And I think online college can never replicate that. And if we're so consumed with the mechanics of doing social distancing and kind of viral abatement, it's going to be, you know, if all, the, if all the social venues are closed, there are no arts performances, there are no sports teams what what are we you know what are we accomplishing there i don't have a better solution i can't say oh this is how i would do it but i think this is a really weird and probably bad time to be going to college and i'm glad neither of our kids are doing that now yeah definitely um yeah so i think for how straight lined you were towards medicine um it may have been disruptive to have <laughs> like a relationship to think about when you came to medical school. Because at that time, we were sort of both thinking about medicine. We weren't really thinking about how can we be together forever. Right? Yeah, well, you know, our, our relationship, as you, as you definitely know, our relationship was changing over the time that we were applying to medical school. We were both pretty solidly pre-med, but maybe looking for a little bit different things because I was applying MD-PhD and mm -hmm. those aren't necessarily, those weren't necessarily the same schools that appealed to you. And over the, let's say, year and a half that the whole process was going on, it's a pretty long time in the life of a, in the arc of a college pre-medical applicant. So at the start, I think probably neither one of us was completely ready to commit to the other, just in terms of like, we're going to go to the same school. Uh, and I do remember that the couple of high school couples that had gone on to the same college had not been successful. Ah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> that I was aware of, not necessarily at you know our college. So of course, as you get older, those relationships get to be more stable. But so you know, I have to say that Wash U, I I was aware of St. Louis because the Duracell Battery Competition <laughs> Awards had been presented at the National Science Teachers Association convention 1996 in St. Louis at America's Center. So the one time that I had been here was for something relatively positive, although you know, the 
the time it seemed like let's say mildly dorky as well but uh, st louis no the duracell battery oh. competition <laughs> st louis was great the ravioli were great you know arch all that stuff we didn't spend that much time here all expenses paid trip to st louis so i had a pretty positive association with it so when someone said hey you know you should put wash you on your list i thought yeah actually you're right you know, I'd been aware of WashU from uh, before, like in the early days of the proto-internet, there was this thing called uh, Woo Archive that was like an on-ramp to the, to, to, I think it was a Usenet host site or something like that. And so if you wanted to use the internet, you could dial up to your local bulletin board service with your 2400 baud modem and then use like a door or something to log on to Woo Archive. So I perceived WashU as being a pretty advanced university because of that. Nice. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm like the only person, <laughs> maybe in America, that still cares about that. All right, so the MD-PhD program became Tabashu. Yeah, well, right, so I... Well, first I of all, I very, very yeah. distinctly remember you calling me. I was in my dorm room at Princeton saying, I really love this place. I think you need to apply, and you would really like it, too. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that conversation? Oh, yeah, no, I remember being on the other end of it. So I, <laughs> uh, you know, the MD-PhD interviews, uh, I, I had gone on several, and they usually treat people pretty well, fancy dinners and so on. There's, they spend a lot on the recruiting. I think WashU had done a particularly good job with all of the mechanical kind of stuff that matters to me. Like, they had nice application forms. I got a nice acknowledgement that they had gotten the paper sent in. Um, Brian Sullivan has been the administrator or the, let's say, executive director of MSTP at WashU for, uh, you know, now. I mean, he wasn't new in the position when I came through, and that was 20 years ago. Uh, and he just really did a great job of making people feel welcome. And I saw that it was really a great place to train with a wonderful environment. And just a lot of things told me that it should at least be on our list. Because if you hadn't applied, then you wouldn't probably be getting in and then we wouldn't be going to wash you together you know we we had sort of overlapping lists of schools that we had applied to i had applied to you know whatever 10 and you had applied to five of the same 10 and then another five that seemed more appealing to you but might have been nearby like university of iowa was a big one where we could have intersected but yeah i remember yeah. going back to the best western there on lindell and <laughs> you know making a phone call which I think I probably had to pay for too, by the mm. way, to make a long distance phone call from the hotel room. But I really wanted you to put Wash U on your list and see if you could apply. And I think it was like December 5th of that year. That and our deadline late. at the time was December 1st. So they had to give you a deadline waiver, but they did actually, which I thought was very applicant focused. Now that I'm on the other side of the admissions coin, I kind of realized that if someone is, you know, really interested in applying to your school, you, you usually would do it, uh, you know, let them, let them show the, show, show themselves and let's see how they look. But I, at the time it really stood out as a pretty applicant focused thing. Cause they didn't really know me from Adam's house cat. So for them to change and certainly not you for them to change right, right. their deadline so that someone's girlfriend could apply. Uh, but subsequently, you know, some schools tried to play hardball with this. Like, look, we'll accept both of you, but here's your exploding offer. You have to tell us by tomorrow if you're coming, which at the time was legal, but isn't anymore. And it just like was not ethical even then, because hmm. you got to give people time to decide. And WashU was very, I'd say, professional about about the admissions process. They didn't try to play hardball. It was just here's your offers. We'd love it if you came, but but that was it. So. I did appreciate that, that they didn't make it feel like they were somehow doing us a big favor. Yeah, and we were, in retrospect, so lucky to be able to have that option, too, of coming here together. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a great place for both of us to launch our careers. Yeah. You were doing research on G-protein coupled receptors, and I was getting into OBGYN and delivering babies all the time, and... Um, can you talk us through that experience? Because I don't know if it's like the, yeah. Yeah, well, so here's the, here's the part that's going to you know, probably be interesting to your listeners <laughs> is to hear a little bit of like the other side of OBGYN residency. Because I have to say that being uh, an MSDP student married to an OBGYN intern and resident was very difficult. There were a lot of things that were very hard about that time. 
we made it through, right? 15 years after that, we're still married uh, and doing great and survived. But, you know, there's there's this kind of arc that no one really tells MSTP students about that any listeners who went through this will kind of understand. When it starts out, it's great. You get uh, sort of feted, wines, uh, dinners, uh, a retreat at Trout Lodge in the Ozarks. You get to skip biochemistry or place out of it. You kind of get some special benefits, scholarship to medical school. And then you go to the lab and your classmates go to the clinics. Now they're wearing their white coats every day and it's kind of fun. They're getting what they came for, like learning to be a more of a doctor. And then they, and you're in the lab. That's kind of fun. Lab is where you wanted to be. Then uh, fast forward two more years. So now it's year four of your program. Your classmates are graduating. Now they're really doctors. They're getting a paycheck suddenly your mstp stipend is half of what your classmates mm-hmm. are earning or your wife <laughs> or your wife well then you benefit a little bit you're stuck in really the doldrums of the lab like year two to me was not the best year of of lab uh, you're kind of slogging through you haven't really gotten your methods perfected you may have had to switch projects you may not know exactly what you're just getting a little bit down in the dumps about it And then you can see where this is going. Like fast forward three or four more years and now your classmates are graduating and buying their attending house or like building a new house like one of our classmates did. And you're like still in the lab, (laughs) right? Still having to kind of ask permission to borrow the projector or, you know, show up at midnight to harvest some cells. Uh, Of course, doctors are doing that same kind of thing, but it just doesn't feel like you're making as much progress. So I would say that having the OBGYN residency right in the middle there, and of course it was a slightly different time. When you went through, the duty hours had just come into effect a couple of years before, and they were they were doing them. Like I mean, that the, year, yeah. Yeah, that it very year. might have been the first year. Yeah, I was an intern. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was surely much more controlled than it ever had been before, but th- there were still those long like call shifts where you would go in on Friday and then not come back until like Saturday night or whatever it was. I don't even remember exactly but I remember a lot of like cold dinners you know because I was in order to like nurse my my feelings of inadequacy I'd started cooking like elaborate dinners and then of course there was really no one to eat them a lot of the time Uh, so that definitely set the scene for Mm -hmm. the rest of our life (laughs) where you are an amazing cook and well I've gotten a lot of practice (laughs) Uh, but yeah I felt like there was a real uh, asymmetry in how much I was accomplishing and I found the lab very difficult. People had told me graduate school is the most exciting time of your of your education. You're asking the questions and you're seeing the data for the first time and discovering new knowledge and charting a path. And I really felt like I was, you know, digging through rock with a toothpick. It was very hard to make progress. I felt like the methods that I was using weren't really well oriented towards my hypothesis. I felt that I wasn't very good at executing them. And I was used to normally the things that I did being somewhat good at like mm-hmm. usually not choosing to do things that I, I wasn't somewhat good at I think that's a natural uh, kind of behavior and so in the lab there was uh, my friend in the lab had pretty good hands and I could uh, Jeff you know that we're mm-hmm. still good friends with but so I could just see the contrast of like here's someone that really has the lab skill set and that's I mean people have different skill sets but I just didn't feel like I was killing it necessarily so I wasn't sure what I was accomplishing mm-hmm. uh, and that's hard I mean I think you're right that was one of the first times in your life that you had really felt that way or, or mm-hmm. maybe even had enough time to feel that way I and mean, you were having a lot of time of self-reflection during that uh, yeah yeah definitely had a lot of alone time too yeah just you know <laughs> we did have a dog uh yeah we uh <laughs> when did Bentley come that was in your yeah fourth year of medical school mm-hmm. so we already we already had the dog. So, yeah, I don't think that I could have gotten to the, to that awareness without going to graduate school. So I don't, you know, people say, would you do MD-PhD again? I mean, like now, being the age that I am, I wouldn't do it again now. <laughs> right. But I don't think that I would tell my 20-year-old self that I shouldn't have done it mm-hmm. at the time. But I, I do remember our organic chemistry instructor, Mate Jones, I asked him, would you write a letter of uh, recommendation for MD-PhD? He said, it's included with your tuition uh, and uh, he was kind of a doer individual and then I asked him do you do you think I should do that program and he said it's the devil's invention he oh. really didn't like them really and so he he had a point his point was very much Mr. Miyagi like you know science do okay science no do okay 
Science dude, guess so. Squish. squish. Like grapes. <laughs> yeah, squish like grape. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interestingly, he had been to Japan many times, come to think of it. Oh, I, wow. I don't, he never talked about Karate Kid, but he had had some Japanese grad students and postdocs, and he had kind of a, some kind of program that connected with Japan. So, yeah, he, uh, uh, he had given me a cautionary note about it. But anyway, so I'll say that I'm glad that I did MD-PhD. I, I don't need to have a PhD to do the job that I do now in pathology. Mm-hmm. And my penance is having applicants or other people ask me almost every day what I do in my lab or like oh. ask questions about my primary NIH funded research program because that's what MD PhD graduates do. Yeah. But I, you know, currently I don't have a primary science program. And that's fine. That's the other thing though that uh, you're not told. You think when you start out that what I need to do is enter an MD-PhD program, and then I'll come out at the other end of the pipeline as a fully-fledged scientist, but there's really a lot of attrition along the way, which is probably natural. I mean, it's a pyramid scheme. Our ecosystem doesn't have enough room for all of those people to start their own successful NIH-funded research program. Yeah. So, I mean, no one really likes being part of the attrition. But I don't think you have been attrition. You've just found a different yeah, I'm not attrition, but I might be, you know, bycatch. I mean, someone that wasn't necessarily meant to be in the net, but it's probably okay that they were. You just kind of throw them back in, and they'll probably swim off. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the typical analogies that people enjoy hearing. Sure, sure. Yeah. So uh, what, I, you know, what, I, what I do now is surgical pathology, and I found that that was something that really... Uh, did resonate with me. You can make a diagnosis. It helps. The better you are at it, the more it helps. You can get better at it by doing a lot of it. Every case is kind of different. The cases are pretty interesting. It is clinically relevant. It's, it's clinical medicine. We don't necessarily see the patients face-to-face. Once in a great while, one will obtain my phone number and call to complain about a bill that they've gotten, but that's mm-hmm. really the mm-hmm. limit because they say... I, I, I never, I never saw you. Yeah, I never heard of you. Uh, and, and I'm happy to explain to them kind of how pathology works or why they did get a bill, but we work more with the other doctors. And I think that that's probably a good place for me to be. I mean, I, I do enjoy uh, what I do, and it's nice to be able to be of service to the OBGYN department. That's, you know, ultimately, that's kind of my way of like reclaiming our <laughs> life from the clutches of, uh, of, you know, a demanding clinical career is by getting involved in it in my own way as the OBGYN pathologist. Yeah. So although some people have said like, oh, it must be really hard to like see each other all the time at work or intersect all the time. It's probably been a, it's been a, a highlight to me anyway. I'm very glad that it worked out that way. Yeah, it's, me too. And our, I think our whole department really enjoys working with you as a pathologist. And, and of course, the rest of your department as well, but um, I think it involves so much communication, right? And when I think about all the other things that you're doing, a lot of it centers around communicating with others. You're very involved in medical school admissions now, and also very involved in the community. Um, you know, kind of different positions you serve on our neighborhood board, as well as the church and everything. You're you're always communicating you also type really fast communicating emails very quickly yeah you know everyone has their skill set I mean mine seems to be possibly saying yes to things I don't know that I'm the most uh uh, skilled at at filling some of these positions uh, but I'm always willing to do it and uh, of course deciding what to say no or what to say yes to is an important part of advancing your career and kind of making the uh the, the correct balance to build out a balanced portfolio, but I, I do, I think, enjoy representing the organization, uh, strengthening institutions, you know, filling filling roles that, that need to be filled. So, like, for example, I am a trustee of the neighborhood. That's a interesting position because uh, we, there are three of us, we are, we are so-called uh, self-appointed and serve for life. That's a, <laughs> not a real complimentary way of putting it, but uh, when there's a vacancy, the trustees choose, the remaining trustees choose the person that they want to select to fill that position, and there's no mechanism for removing the person. I mean, they can resign or move out of the neighborhood, but 
other than that, they continue. So it's you know kind of like the Supreme Court in that way, mm. that uh, you have to you have to be able to get along with people for an extended period. the The importance of that role is significantly smaller than Supreme Court. We're mostly responsible for opening and closing the gates, which are open like three hundred sixty four <laughs> days a year. Yeah, yeah, we close it for Fourth of July and the balloon race. Yeah. Both of which were canceled this year. <laughs> right. Um, well, now that we have two kids, a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old, um, and we're seeing their ideas develop, and oh my gosh, too many ideas for Oliver, and um, I don't know. What are your hopes and dreams for them? Well, I... Do you I, want I, them... Did the people ask you, like, do you want I, them to go into medicine? Do you hope they choose a career in medicine? Yeah, you know, people sometimes do ask. I don't feel strongly uh, that they should or shouldn't. I don't, I don't particularly hope that they do. I'm neutral on it. I think that they should find something that they really do enjoy doing and are motivated by. I think that's very important to love what you do. And you run into people who do. And it's actually really inspiring to see people who don't mind what their job... <laughs> you know, asks of them because they're willing to. And I think that's something that you do see in OBGYN. You see a lot of dedication. You have to have the dedication to be willing to to stick with it. And, it, you know, it's not just a, a slog. Uh, that implies that this has kind of a negative connotation, but it just demands a very large commitment of your time and focus. I think it takes a lot out of you emotionally to deal with these pretty serious situations on a regular basis. I mean, one thing that attracted me to pathology in a way was like the level levelness of it we don't have a ton of emergencies and mm -hmm. sometimes we have to run to do a frozen section and we'll have a high stakes case but there's not usually something that I have to do this very second or this very minute it's more like today I need to do it or this mm -hmm. week mm -hmm. and it might be a very important task uh, so it, it doesn't have that level of adrenaline I guess I'll say but just you know thinking back to the kids I mean they they're still at an age that I don't, I don't think that all children have yet figured out what their passion is. Right. And I don't know that I really had as even a, you know, certainly not at their age or as a college-age student or maybe even as a beginning medical student really zeroed in. I think that you have to create opportunities for the child to figure out what it is that they like, like making things available to them, letting them try different things. And then, you know, a place that I think that you and I don't completely agree is letting them quit something that isn't that they learn isn't for them I think that part of you know trying a food once is not being served a whole plate of it later if you don't like it so there's a happy medium because kids don't necessarily know how much uh, how many guitar lessons they need to take before they realize or get to decide look this isn't something I want to do uh, and you know the same applies to medical training you have your rotation in whatever you know field uh, your you know maybe L&D rotation, you say, this is what I want to do for life. Mm -hmm. I think we need to make sure that we get our trainees enough exposure to the different career paths and forms of career development that they can make an informed decision about what fellowship to apply for. In pathology, uh, our, our trainees apply uh, a full like year and a half out from their fellowship, uh, kind of like medicine used to be. So mm -hmm. basically a second year resident in a three-year AP-only pathology program, anatomic pathology, would already be starting to apply for their fellowship. And it's getting earlier and earlier. There's no match for pathology fellowship, so it's just like a, um, a job market where you just apply and get offers and accept them or not. So that's really early. We're not giving our applicants enough time to develop their portfolio and their interests, and we can tell their applications are sort of you know, not poorly thought out, but they just haven't had a lot of time. And some of the subspecialties are pretty competitive. So yeah. that's a clear area where we're doing a disservice. And we would need people to get together, program directors, to get together and say, listen, all of us are going to move our application date down by 12 months. It's, you're going to apply as a senior resident, not as a second-year resident uh, for the fellowships. But that only works if everyone agrees. And we just don't have a strong enough kind of society structure to, to get everyone to agree on that. So I actually do think that the fellowship match is uh, beneficial in OBGYN because it forces people to play by the same rule book. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> the, the interviews are coming up for fellowships, and that's kind of why we're right. thinking about it. Right, and also just interviews for every next step. Um, it's changing so much right now um, in terms of virtual interviews and 
Um, you're, you actually are doing, we can celebrate your Loeb Fellowship and you're in the Academy of Educators and, and really are taking um, medical education as a special interest of yours, which is wonderful. I think you're a great teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've always been interested in education. You know, I think probably the way it started uh, was that I was a computer science teaching assistant uh, over the summers in high school. That was a opportunity that there was and uh, we had a mandatory uh, computer science course that, that sophomores would take in the high school so they would hire on four or five of the high schoolers to, to TA and I just discovered that I really liked working with the the kids who were really peers at the time and kind of understanding like why does this why is this hard for this person and what would help them to understand it and uh, the the asset that I had there I think was just being able to see things in different ways probably like to have some sense of, of why the person didn't understand but yeah, fast forwarding to what we're doing in education now, I think that it's really important to get the right person connected with the right school. That's worked for me a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Admissions has played a pretty big role where I wouldn't necessarily have uh, have had the insight as an applicant to, to say that this is going to be a good place for me. So I think we need to do whatever we can to give applicants a good feel of what we offer here at WashU and our various programs, whether you're talking about uh, medical school or residencies or fellowships and without in-person visits it's going to be really hard our secret weapon has always been that when you get here you say huh it's actually pretty nice in st yeah. louis i wouldn't yeah. have i wouldn't have thought you know just i i wouldn't have had any basis to think anything about it until visiting and uh, so we're not going to be able to do that in the same way this year i think for the uh, OBGYN fellowships that have their whole process in the fall it's definitely game over because the pandemic won't be over in time for medical school applicants and possibly residency applicants there could be time for things to loosen up in the spring and for people to come through for a visit if they're really interested but even that will probably be more socially distanced than it would have been in the you know olden days i think it's important for us to create uh, materials to uh, to share with the applicants for them to be like as authentic as possible mm -hmm. right so a highly polished video won't really tell someone what it's like to uh to be in the place you really need to be talking to or hearing from people we've honestly zoom works pretty well zoom happy hours and you know the type of zoom tour where you might strap a gopro camera to a student and have them walk around and answer questions i oh, think yeah. those things can work cool. it's, i mean you do get a feel for people's personality pretty quickly on zoom right yeah. there's all the zoom personality types that are emerging like the close zoomer oh the, interesting i haven't seen that or that's funny the, like virtual background zoomer uh -huh. <laughs> like yeah what are they hiding right <laughs> what are they trying to hide uh, so i think in fact if we're not careful we give them like way too, yeah, much, too much information window. yeah <laughs> yeah we just but need uh, we need applicants to do their part too and kind of lean into consuming the materials that that we can make available for them and really take the time to thoughtfully evaluate what choices they're going to have to make. I think they will. Uh, they, I just have this kind of paranoia that someone might skip the video tour and just apply to all the schools or all the programs and then just right. kind right. of rank them in U.S. Thing. news order. Mm -hmm. Well, if there's one thing that people know about Washington University School of Medicine, it's that it's the school where students have high MCAT scores, and that's probably rewarded us in terms of our U.S. News ranking. But the more I'm involved in admissions, the more I realize that there's really a pernicious aspect of that ranking, even though it's probably been kind to us uh, over the years. Uh, and that's that uh, it's now been pretty conclusively demonstrated that students of color and from disadvantaged backgrounds don't do as well on standardized tests. And so I think the existence of that US News list unintentionally is enforcing and strengthening some of the biases in medical admissions against students of color. And I think that we should probably, as an institution and as a group of kind of a peer group of institutions, think about the, the US News phenomenon. I can imagine a parallel universe where all of us in our peer group band together and refuse to contribute data to U.S. News and World Report, and their list would immediately lose its currency because the top schools wouldn't, wouldn't be on it anymore. 
So that's something to think about, but I really don't have a pedestal tall enough or a soapbox sturdy enough to stand on. I would love to see some of our leadership across medical education kind of you know, stand up and make that a platform for, for the maybe sometime in the next, you know, in the next little while, as soon as possible, honestly, uh, because it's been shown that the MCAT does predict success in a medical uh, career, but only up to a certain point. The scores above the average tend to predict successfully completing medical school. And uh, of course, we don't have a great number of students with sort of average to above average scores at WashU, so it's hard to say what score is necessary to succeed here. Uh, but there's lots of ways to be well prepared for medical school, and I've definitely learned that from working with lots of different kinds of people. And I think we're uncovering, you know, many of the layers that go into, I mean, it's, it's not an inherent bad test taking skill or something like you're not really born with that. What you're born with is the, you know, potential opportunity to get educated at, you know. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's a layer of, there's a layer of preparation for the test. There's also a layer of comfort with the test. And then there's the so-called uh, bigotry of soft expectations uh, that's sort of built into the test. There's there's lots of different ways, and uh, you know, famously, it can boil down to taking a test prep course. Of course, we could increase access to the course, but you know, even if the course is paid for, Kaplan or Princeton Review, do you have time to pay attention to it? Can you get to the course? Uh, how high quality was the instruction that you had in those subjects? And of course, it's not real clear how much you need to know about organic chemistry to succeed in medicine. Something, I think. It does tell you something about the person's reasoning ability and problem solving and ability to retain material and grasp abstract concepts. It certainly tells you something, but I, I don't think the last word has been said on what it takes to enter a medical career. I do think that pre-medical preparation is very important. We're trying to compress medical school and uh, reduce the, the intensity of the preclinical years. So I think that we'll be relying a little bit more on the pre-medical courses to teach some content that, you know, previously we would accomplish in the first two years. Yeah. Here's Ian on what his daily motivation is. Oh, well, I, I'm trying to accomplish something here. I'm trying to, to get better at what I'm doing. I'm trying to build a GYN and breast pathology program, not just a fellowship, although that, but also like a kind of robust functioning educational and research unit. Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily in, in charge of, of the whole thing or single-handedly responsible, but I think that all of us are jointly responsible for making WashU a better place and contributing to to maintaining the character and values and culture that it has. So for me, that includes having a, a team of people who are excited about um, uh, doing the work that you can do here, who have, who have ideas, who have energy, uh, who are going to benefit from being here. Uh, I mean, I do enjoy having a very international group of coworkers. You know, pathology is like the United Nations. I mean, there's a lot of people who are not like native speakers of English who trained in other countries. And uh, we, we see that, that, you know, the, they're really the cream of the crop to have come to the U.S. from their country really tells you uh, that they're able to overcome a lot of barriers. I just think about, you know, for me to practice medicine in like the mirror image would be for me to go to China and practice pathology and write papers in Chinese. I think that would be very difficult to do. So <laughs> I have a lot of appreciation for what uh, our colleagues do collectively so it, it's definitely motivating to to work with people who are uh, successful in spite of obstacles uh, but yeah I think I, I I have a larger program of like what I really want to do is understand mixed uh, mixed tumor types that's well the <laughs> that's your happy. overall goal <laughs> yeah my overall goal is to understand like serous mixed with endometrioid adenocarcinoma I just don't understand what is happening there and I don't think anyone else does so. <laughs> 10%. Uh, 10% of tumors or 10% yeah, yeah. of the tumor? 10% of the tumor. Yeah, if it's 10% is serous. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, well, it, no, it seems like any component of serous is a bad prognostic factor. But, like, how does it, you know, is, did one arise out of the other? You know, which one came first? 
uh, which one has the truncal mutation, which one is just like a uh, epiphenomenon. And there have been lots of attempts to study it, but you know, without necessarily having a full mastery of the literature, I'll just say that we don't seem to have really figured out like, okay, this is the clarity of now we understand what the mechanism was. Whereas like, I don't know, think about cervical cancer. Like we've got a certain clarity about the role of HPV. Like we just understand it really in depth in a way that's like kind of mechanistic and we can make predictions about it. And these mixed tumors or, or carcinosarcoma of the uterus or ovary would be another example. It's We're more at the level of like, we see this sometimes, mm-hmm. WSTS, which is a phrase that uh, uh, Dr. Littman taught me, uh, uh, Mike Littman, when uh, when I was on service with him at the VA as a medical student, he often, you know, he had a couple of stock phrases. WSTS is what you call a phenomenon that we really don't understand very well, but that you have to be aware of. And uh, I think that if, if I were to put forth a coherent program of research, it would be uh, to try to understand what's happening with mixed tumors. But again, I just don't feel like I have quite the right, right lever arm or the right place to stand to exert that lever. But I'm kind of at least thinking about it. Do you see any changes with the virtual way that's been proposed to do frozen sections and pathology? And um, just curious about thoughts about how we can even interact more with our pathologists. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, your best, right. So let's talk more about how uh, OBGYN interacts with pathology. The best way is to be married to your pathologist. (laughs) If you don't have that opportunity. Not everybody can be so lucky. (laughs) Well, it used to be, that's right. It used to be and vice versa. But it used to be that uh, OB residents would come through pathology for a month or for a seven-week rotation and just it got crowded out. You know, I think it probably got turned into the research or ultrasound or some other rotation, uh, you know, another onc rotation. There just wasn't room for it anymore. But, you know, I noticed that pathologists rotate through surgery and surgical specialties, but surgical specialists don't necessarily rotate through pathology at any point. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it makes it a little bit hard to understand just physically what's happening, like why the frozen sections take the time that they do. Some of the delay is for good reason. And then like sometimes it, it, it's not for good reason, but just kind of understanding how these delays get introduced. And turnaround time isn't the only thing. I know it's very salient to everyone because you're sitting there waiting for the frozen uh, to come back. But I think that probably communication and tolerance would be very helpful. I'm actually, I'm giving a noon lecture on communication today for our residents. I oh. give it every couple of years. Uh, and one of the things I focus on is understanding like the language of the person that you're speaking to what their priorities are and and kind of why the communication is taking place and how it's going to be perceived, how whatever you say to them is going to be perceived. I have a, one of those like surgeon versus pathologist videos that used to be popular oh. uh, because and the reason it's funny, I mean, it was like, you you know, it's made in a video game platform of some kind. I, I don't remember exactly what the game, there was some game where you could kind of program the characters to say anything. So it'll be a, you know, surgeon talking to anesthesiologist or whatever. The reason it's funny is that it they point out that we just have a little bit different like vocabulary and set of things that are obvious to us. Like to the pathologist, it's obvious that there's more than one pathologist, but to the surgeons, it may not be. So they'll call and they'll ask like, oh, hey, what did you think of this other case? It's like, that's someone else's, mm-hmm. you know, a different pathologist has that case. There's more than one of us. Like, I haven't seen your case. You know, I, I don't have all the cases in the department. Uh, just kind of concretely, some of our processing just physically takes time. It takes overnight for like nucleic acids to hybridize or to, you know, for, we also have just some practical aspects of our workflow where the people who prepare the slides aren't there all the time Mm -hmm. and cases have different degrees of urgency. And, you know, actually there was a point in time when every case, something like 90% of our cases came in labeled as rush. It's obviously impossible. Like you can't. (laughs) You can't, you know, if every case is on top, no case is on top. And uh, a lot of the consults to pathology, actually specifically from uh, GYN Oncology, at some point someone was trained to write rush on every case. Yes, I think that's still happens. Well, yeah. So, you know, they can't, and I kind of asked around and the feeling I got was that it was perceived that we wouldn't look at it unless it said rush. So there's just some obvious problems with that. And uh, I think it's been helpful to me in my career to have like a little bit closer personal contact. And, you know, if, if you like the people you're working with and kind of for, and 
want to maintain a relationship with them, it's really helpful. I mean, if you like hate them and think they're jerks, then you're probably not going to do a very good job or work very hard. Well, I think that in a situation where we are dealing with patients right in front of us, right, it's, you can understand why we would think, well, look, we've been doing all these busy things and you're just in your in your lab. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, well, th- so Why there's can't a. Can't you just leave yeah. this line right now? Yeah, there's a, well, there's a truth. There's a couple of truths there. One is that w- we have a very different set of pressures in our work because the patients aren't there. They're not calling us necessarily. Mm-hmm. I don't know that most pathologists would thrive in an environment where they really did have the patients calling them to sign or, the cases out. We'd probably be a little bit faster about it. We pro- realistically, we we probably would. Uh, and so we have to have some sympathy and understanding for like what's happening in the clinician's office. We call all of you guys clinicians. A clinician is just the you know, phrase for anyone that's not a pathologist or a radiologist, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, being married to a clinician has been helpful in understanding or just kind of seeing what it means when a pathology report is late or has, has corrections or typos or spelling mistakes or missing elements and just how it's, uh, how it's perceived. And then I have a little bit of a sort of mystery to me is why pathology is so time consuming. I mean, there there used to be this perception that we just like leave at 3 p.m. to go play golf. Like, you know, not only is that not true, like I I definitely don't play golf and that you could make an argument that when the surgeon's work stops, that's when the pathologist's work begins because, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, you take the specimen out, put it in a bucket and then send it to the lab and then we've got to be there to process it and receive it and kind of open it and so on. So, you know, if anything, it's going to be later in the day. Um, but if you just were to describe it like, well, a technician makes some slides and then we look at them, that sounds like it should take 30 microseconds. So, and, you know, we say, well, there's a lot of details, but clinician notes and encounters have a lot of details too. And there's a whole like, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of extra steps of the decision uh, making process and, and clinical reasoning process that we don't necessarily have, like treatment planning, you know, all of that stuff, kind of the assessment and plan. We don't do any of it. We really just do the diagnostic piece. But somehow pathology really is a full-time job and the cases legitimately take a long time. And although sometimes one gets lost on the bottom of the pile and like I probably could have signed it out yesterday, I think that making a faster diagnosis would usually give you a worse diagnosis. Mm -hmm. You know, there's kind of three things, I joke, but you know, there's fast, good, and cheap, and we don't offer cheap anymore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can have the right diagnosis a little bit later, or you can have an approximate or possibly wrong diagnosis right now. Sometimes there'll be a case that we want to get a second opinion from another pathologist. You might say, well, how long should that take? Like, knock on their door, but maybe they're not there. Maybe they're not available right now. Maybe they're, you know, on the other platoon because of COVID. Maybe they don't necessarily know the diagnosis either, or they want to look at it tomorrow when they're uh, you know, have fresh eyes. So there's lots of reasons why a case might take a while to come out. It's helpful to us to know which cases are urgent and try to prioritize them. And one of the best things is having a conversation with the sort of end user mm-hmm. of our, you know, to, to explain like, here's what I think is going on. I think that's helpful to, to them too. Even if the diagnosis is like, you know, not what they were hoping to hear, having a discussion about why this diagnosis is, uh, you know, the sample is non-diagnostic. We think you might need another one. I'd rather have a frank discussion about that than just make something up and say, oh, well, you know, focal adenocarcinoma and then have someone make the wrong treatment decision. Right. So I mean, we, we one thing I would drive home to the listeners is that we have a pretty good understanding of the patient care consequences of our diagnoses and, um, you know, that we do have a physician's mindset about it. Uh, I do think that you need to be a physician to be a pathologist or you should need to. It might be technically possible mm-hmm. for someone to practice pathology as more of a technical specialist, but I think they're going to do a less good job. We've always joked that work-life balance is this. We just work together. Which is funny. How do you talk about that with people and, and wellness to you? Um, more of the exercise for wellness person than I think you are too. Yeah, no, exercise is very important. I think be, feeling a, a license to practice wellness is important. We have to realize, and our, our field has moved forward to where we now do talk about wellness kind of explicitly and out loud. Uh, I think that it's important to 
have a sense of balance and to find something outside of work that you uh, that, that you find to be refreshing. Uh, I don't necessarily find that the practice of pathology grinds me down physically in the same way. You know, you're not necessarily having to stand on your feet. You can drink coffee while you're doing it. Sometimes I do feel like I'm just tired of tired of looking at slides. Uh, and we're lucky in pathology to uh, to have a culture and a pattern of practice where we can do that. People do say, look, you know, I can't look at it anymore right now. It's actually dangerous for me to keep signing out cases. Mm -hmm. And that's true. I mean, mm -hmm. there have been times when we, you know, um, when, when I had to, when we were leaving on vacation sometime that I wanted to finish up cases before we left and, uh, you know, might have stayed extra late to work on them. And you start to realize that, hey, you know, I'm, I probably should leave this case for someone to look at next week not because I'm not dedicated to finishing it or because I want to foist work off, but I just want to be sure that, that we don't miss something and I can't, can't afford to move too fast here. Yeah. Uh, and so no, I think that the, the emphasis on wellness in our in medicine is salutary and very important. I do think that we should maintain, you know, I'm sort of a, you know, I think toughness has a role and having a certain amount of grit and, and being willing to work hard are very important. I mean, those things do appeal to me. I'm not sure that I have it in particular. You know, that, that it, I'm not sure that it's really my strong suit. Uh, I mean, that's why I probably didn't choose a field that requires a great degree of physical stamina, endurance, and even like maybe sacrifice. You know, pathology, you're not on call that much. You sleep in your own bed. The, there's, there's not really an intern year per se. I mean, mm -hmm. those are unique mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. I was looking to maintain a little bit more balance. We couldn't really have had two like surgical lifestyles in our life. That was never in our household. That was never what I wanted out of life. I never wanted to be the, uh, you know, the the people that had just absolutely no time for their family stuff. So I made a, you know, choice of a specialty. I came second in choosing specialty. I made a choice that made that more possible. You know, I don't. I don't know that I ever seriously considered going into, let's say, general surgery or mm -hmm, whatever, mm -hmm. but I, just thinking back to my mindset at the time, I didn't feel that that was really even available to me, which was okay because it wasn't what I wanted. So, you know, I, I am able to spend some quality time with the kids. They drive me nuts. I mean, you are too. We both are. We're, <laughs> you know, one of the advantages of our lifestyle at WashU and in St. Louis is that we're able to, to do that. We don't have a very long commute. We're able to live pretty close to work. I think WashU is actually a relatively kind workplace. I think our culture is pretty positive and, you know, needs to be. It needs to be okay to go to your kids, like, play or show or performance or pick them up from school once in a while. We've learned from, you know, coronavirus has helped with that, too. There's less emphasis on FaceTime than mm -hmm. there had been. Like, are you in the office or not? You're probably working from home if you're, yeah. Yeah. If you're not. So I think all those things... It's funny that you said that because there's probably more emphasis on FaceTime, actually. On FaceTime, yeah, with the capital F and the capital T, yeah. Right. Uh, but just getting FaceTime with the boss doesn't mean uh, quite what it used to. So, yeah, balance, you know, there's another Karate Kid concept. Uh, uh, Mr. Miyagi told Daniel-san that he needs to achieve balance. Uh, and I think that we've we've gotten a pretty good degree of it, and it's helped us to be, you know, a successful uh, family, each each playing our own part. I think that we've probably both given up, you know, certain things in order to uh, to make it work. You know, for my own part, I never did a GYN pathology fellowship mm -hmm. explicitly. Mm -hmm. I feel well qualified, but I didn't take a year or two years when I was going to a famous institute of gynecologic pathology to serve a fellowship there. That was just a, you know, in order to not split up our family. It wasn't, you know, I like pathology, but I didn't like it enough to to do that. Mm. You meet people, particularly mm -hmm. on the coasts, who are doing that. Yeah. You know, like, where's your husband? Oh, he lives in Boston. Why? Well, you know, he's training in Boston. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a wonderful thing to do, but we were never <laughs> willing yeah. to do that. We've been lucky we haven't, haven't had to. Had to, or we maybe we decided not to. I don't mm -hmm. know if it's a combination of those two things. Yeah. Anyway, we better get on with our days. Uh, yeah, it's, um, uh, we're both on service here, and uh, at least I know I am. i got to go look at some GYN path specimens <laughs> right. before the clinicians start calling. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Right. Well, if anyone ever wants to come up and see some pathology specimens, I'm always happy to show you the slides from your patients, and it might 
help you to understand a little bit more of what's going on. Yeah. I hope that it's I hope that it's interesting to hear a little bit about you know the other side of the of the microscope here because uh, as I said the, the more communication we can have probably the better absolutely thank you so much have a wonderful day um, I feel like we did talk forever but thankfully we have that we opportunity have the chance. <laughs> all right